Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. In January of 1932, an Irishman named Michael Malloy was living in New York City. He was a mysterious man and not much was known about him, but he did something that would leave a lasting legacy. As a result, he'd come to be known as Iron Mike, Mike the Durable, and the Juggernaut. So who was Iron Mike? What happened to him? And what earned him his amazing nicknames? Having failed to kill Iron Mike using eight different plans, some of which were tried and failed repeatedly, did the Murder Trust at last start thinking about calling off the plot? Later, Murphy and Kreisberg accused each other of playing different roles in what happened next. But one way or another, the gas was turned on, it went into Mike's lungs, and he passed on to his eternal reward on Wednesday, February 22, 1933. Plan 9 had worked, and the unkillable Iron Mike Malloy was finally dead. God rest his soul. You're listening to episode 258 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the murder trust that killed Iron Mike Malloy and what happened to them. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In early 1933, New Yorkers Tony Marino, Frank Pasqua, and others belonged to a murder trust that killed Irishman Michael Malloy. But Mike Malloy proved extraordinarily difficult to kill. The trust tried nine different plans to take his life, some of them multiple times. And although they finally did away with him, his extraordinary ability to survive, despite not knowing that his friends were trying to kill him, earned him nicknames like Iron Mike and Mike the Durable. But what happened once he was dead? Did the conspirators get away with their actions? Were they brought to justice? Exactly what happened to the murder trust? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, to refresh people's memory, let's begin with a quick recap of the people we met in last week's story. Who were they? The central figure was the Irishman Michael Malloy, and he was the victim of an insurance fraud murder plot. Despite the fact that he was a longtime alcoholic who you would expect to be in fragile health, he survived numerous attempts on his life without even realizing that anyone was trying to kill him. He seemed to be able to consume astonishing amounts of both regular liquor and poisonous methyl alcohol. He ate poisoned food, including rotten fish that had been laced with metal shavings, broken glass, and thumbtacks to tear up his insides. Uh, he survived being laid out in freezing weather with water dumped all over him. And he survived being hit by a taxi cab. And he was so smashed with alcohol when all this was happening, he didn't even realize his apparent friends were trying to kill him. But he was finally laid low when they got him drunk, put a rubber tube in his mouth, and connected it to a gas fixture from the wall of an apartment, causing him to die of carbon monoxide poisoning. The way he uncannily refused to die, time after time, led him to being posthumously dubbed Iron Mike Malloy. Mike the Durable, the Juggernaut, and the Irish Rasputin. The friends who were trying to kill him for insurance money came to be known as the Murder Trust. So who were they? 
One of them was Anthony Marino, the owner of the Speakeasy, where Iron Mike did his drinking. Another was Red Murphy, a sometime bartender at the Speakeasy. Frank Pasqua, the owner of a funeral home where Iron Mike sometimes worked. A greengrocer named Daniel Kreisberg. A local criminal named Tough Tony Bastoni, who was part of a counterfeiting scheme. Tough Tony's partner in the counterfeiting scheme, Joseph Malioni and a psychopathic cab driver named Harry Green, who drove around fantasizing about killing his customers. His friends called him Hershey, possibly after the Hershey candy bar. Since you said last week that this mystery has been solved, it's obvious that the murder trust wasn't able to keep what it did secret, at least in the long term. So when did their plans start going wrong? When did information start getting out? While they were still trying to kill Iron Mike, um, I didn't go into this in detail last week since the episode was already long, but you'll recall them executing Plan 8. At this point in their efforts, they thought that they had killed Iron Mike with Hershey Green's cab, but his body seemed to vanish, so they couldn't provide a body to get a death certificate and claim the insurance money. Their solution was their eighth plan, which was to find a guy that looked like Mike, kill him with Hershey's cab, plant a false ID on him, and use his body for insurance purposes. The guy they found was named Joseph Murray, and they thought they'd killed him too, but they had to leave the scene quickly because a car was coming, and it turned out that Murray was not dead. He was just mostly dead, and there's a big difference between being mostly dead and being all dead. So Murray ended up spending 55 days in the hospital recovering. Mike was also alive, having survived his encounter with the taxi, but it only took him five days to recover and return to the bar. So they finally killed him off with Plan 9, the carbon monoxide poisoning. Well, it so happens that not only did Joseph Murray survive, but in his book On the House, The Bizarre Killing of Michael Malloy, author Simon Reed reports, Unbeknownst to Marino and the lads, Murray's ordeal had been witnessed by someone else entirely. Working nights at the Mott Haven Feed Company on Austin Place was not the sort of job that provided one with fun and exciting stories to tell. For Valen Jenkins, his duties were rather remedial. There were bags of feed to stack and orders to process and file. For the most part, the job was mundane and generally not worthy of lengthy discussions at the family dinner table. But on this particular night, Jenkins would go home with the most interesting tale to tell. For at about midnight, he saw something unusual unfold in front of his place of business. Looking out a window onto the street, Jenkins observed several suspicious individuals. What drew his attention to the goings-on outside and away from his paperwork was the rumbling of a car engine. I saw a cab pull up there and three fellows got out, Jenkins said. One of the fellows, Jenkins could not help but notice, was being pulled about by the other two. Now quite curious, Jenkins watched from his safe place as the disturbing scene played out before him. So the cab went on down the street with the three fellows out in the street holding on one fellow, he said. So the cab went down, turned around, and run over the fellow. As Murray lay in a crumpled heap, the cab came to a stop right in front of the feed company, thus allowing Jenkins to make note of the vehicle's license plate number. An astute and concerned citizen, he jotted it down on a piece of paper. When the cab left, Jenkins called an ambulance, which is how Murray got to the hospital. He also gave the cab's license plate number to the police. The police identified the cab and called the cab company. And when Hershey got back to the cab company, there was a note from his boss saying that Detective Lloyd 
from the 40th Precinct wanted to speak with him when he returned. So Hershey went down and talked with Detective Lloyd. Lloyd said that a witness had seen Hershey's cab run over someone. Unfortunately, the notes from their conversation have been lost, so it's not clear what lies Hershey told him in response. In any event, the police didn't detain him, and they let him go. But this encounter concerned Hershey enough that he went by Marino's house and got him out of bed. He said that someone had seen the attack, that the new victim had survived and was in the hospital, and that the police were involved. It wasn't clear whether Murray would survive in the hospital, but they decided that if he died, it wouldn't be safe for them to try to collect the insurance policies. That didn't stop them, of course, from going ahead with Plan 9 and killing Mike once he returned. The murder trust had insured Mike under a false name they'd created, Nicholas Mellory, and they'd planted a fake, a fake ID card with the name Nicholas Mellory on the second victim, Joseph Murray. If they then killed Mike, and he was also insured under the name Nicholas Mellory, wouldn't it be really stupid to try to collect on those policies? I mean, the authorities might connect the Nicholas Mellory who did die with the second Nicholas Mellory who was the victim of an attempted vehicular homicide. Yes, it would be extremely stupid. As soon as the murder trust learned that there was a witness to Plan 8, they should have called off Plan 9 and given up on the project entirely. Uh, that kind of thing could crack the whole plot wide open. But the members of the murder trust were not smart people. And as we'll see, the plot failed spectacularly on multiple fronts. Back in episode 54, when we talked about the Manson family killings, one of the things I said was that when I first started researching the Manson family, I was actually oddly reassured. The members of the Manson family were so stupid that they were always going to get caught. Their killing spree would end. They would never get away with their crimes. And the same thing is true of the murder trust. These people were not smart. They were always going to get caught. They were incompetent in how they tried to kill Iron Mike, and they were incompetent on multiple fronts in what happened next. That's part of why the story is so amazing. Then let's look at what happened next. What did they do after Plan 9 succeeded and Iron Mike was finally dead? The deed itself had been done by Red Murphy, the bartender, and David Kreisberg, the greengrocer. Uh, it took place in an apartment owned by a woman named Mrs. Delia Murphy on February 22, 1933. The two men then left the apartment building separately and went back to Marino's no-name speakeasy, where the other members of the murder trust wanted to know if, after all their incompetent efforts to kill him, Plan 9 had finally worked and Iron Mike was finally dead. In On the House, Simon Reed reports, Well, Red, how was it? Tony asked. I think it is all right, Murphy said. Bastone and Marino exchanged an eager glance. Had they actually accomplished the impossible? It was too early to celebrate. Murphy had said he simply thought Malloy was dead. He couldn't say for sure and offered no concrete affirmative. For all they knew, Malloy was stumbling along the sidewalk at that very moment, heading in their direction like some unavoidable nightmare. The speakeasy's entrance suddenly loomed large and threatening. Any minute, Malloy, ravaged by an unquenchable thirst, would rip the door from its hinges. Being like a frenzied beast, he would demand drink after drink and a sardine sandwich with each. Failure after painful, humiliating failure, 
had made them all a bit paranoid. Tough Tony then took the rubber hose out of the speakeasy and disposed of it. Marino then ordered Red Murphy, the mentally challenged bartender, to go spend the night with the body, in part to make sure that Mike was really most sincerely dead and that he didn't miraculously wake up during the night. Red was quite willing to do this. He was officially homeless, though Marino let him crash in the bar, and the idea of getting to spend the night in an actual bed was a welcome one, even if there was a dead body in the room. Now that Mike was dead, the murder trust had to arrange for his death to be certified so they could collect the insurance money. How'd they go about doing that? The next morning, they put on a show for the landlady, Mrs. Murphy. Uh, it had been Frank Pasqua, the undertaker, who came up with the carbon monoxide poisoning plan, and he also arranged for what would happen the next morning. So on Thursday, February 23rd, 1933, while Mrs. Murphy was cleaning her apartment building, Red came out of the room where the murder had taken place. Mrs. Murphy knew Red under the false name Joseph Mellory, and when she'd briefly seen Iron Mike the night before, Red told her that Mike was his brother, Nicholas Mellory. Now, he told her that she shouldn't go into the room because her brother was inside and very sick, and she agreed not to disturb him. Red then left the building, saying he'd be back soon, and a bit later, Mrs. Murphy heard two men speaking outside of her front door. Investigating, she discovered that one of the men was Red and the other was Frank Pasqua, who said he was an undertaker and that they were waiting for a doctor to arrive. Mrs. Murphy concluded that Nicholas Mellory must be very sick indeed if his brother called an undertaker and a doctor. But when she'd seen so-called Nicholas Mellory the previous night, he had looked extremely sick. He was even foaming at the mouth. When did the doctor arrive and, and who was he? The doctor arrived shortly after 9 a.m., and his name, his name was Dr. Frank Manzella. He had a clinic across the street from Pasqua's mortuary that was open for a few hours a day, and he was crooked. Pasqua had previously arranged to pay him $150, or $3,200 today after all the inflation the government has caused. Uh, he paid him to come over and falsely certify that Iron Mike had died of natural causes. Mrs. Murphy let him in, and Dr. Manzella asked where the patient was, so she took him up to the room and left. However, in case she or someone else was watching or listening, they went through a pantomime examination. Back to Simon Reed. Inside the room, Pasqua, Murphy, and Manzella went through the motions. The doctor and undertaker, both smiling broadly, exchanged greetings, then turned their attention, albeit briefly, to Malloy. They had a little of this wood alcohol in the room on the table, so the doctor could see it and claim Malloy died of that, Red Murphy said. Dr. Manzella's examination could hardly be called thorough. He walked over to the bed and stared down at the body. Still smiling, he brought his hand up to his mouth and dragged his lower lip down in a gesture of mock contemplation, then did the same to Malloy. The doctor looked him over, then pronounced him dead, Murphy said. So that was that. The pronouncement was official. It was time for Pasqua to get to work. The cause of death, according to Dr. Manzella, was lobar pneumonia. Looking back over his shoulder, he told the undertaker to swing by his office later that morning for a death certificate. We won't go into the technical details of the definition of lobar pneumonia and how it relates to other forms of pneumonia because I'd have to define a bunch of technical terms. However, even before the 1930s, alcohol consumption was thought to contribute to lobar pneumonia. In 1895, Sir William Osler, the father of modern medicine, 
had proposed that drinking too much strongly predisposed patients to developing lobar pneumonia. And when Pasqua picked up the death certificate later in the day, it did indeed list lobar pneumonia as the cause of death. So the murder trust got the entirely non-suspicious natural causes finding that would let them c collect single indemnity on the insurance. And because he was crooked, Dr. Manzella also lied in other ways on the death certificate because he had to pretend that Nicholas Mellory had been under his care, even though he'd never seen Iron Mike before. He thus filled out the death certificate so that it said, I certify that I attended the deceased from February 18, 1933 to February 23, 1933, that I last saw him alive on the 23rd day of February, and that death occurred on February 23, 1933, at 11.30 a.m., and that the cause of death was as follows, lobar pneumonia. The death certificate also falsely stated other things to conform to the Nicholas Mellory identity that had been created for insurance purposes, such as saying that he was born in the U.S., that he was only 40 years old, and that he was working as a laborer and a florist. Frank Pasqua then hired Salvatore Cordovani of Cordovani's undertaking company to retrieve the body from the apartment and bring it to Pasqua's burial services. After receiving the body, Pasqua went down to Marino's speakeasy and showed off the death certificate in triumph. The goal now was to get Mike's body, and thus all of the evidence, into the ground as quickly and cheaply as possible. So Pasqua skipped embalming him. He gave him a cheap casket that cost $18, or $400 today. The casket had no cushioning in it. It was just a gray-painted pine box. Between the casket, the body removal from the apartment, a wagon to take the casket to the cemetery, to the cemetery and the charity case pauper's grave that was purchased, the whole cost of getting Iron Mike into the ground would be just $119, or $2,600 today. But that wouldn't stop Pasqua from making some extra money. Simon Reed states, Going from what Pasqua put on paper, Malloy received a royal send-off. In his deceit, Pasqua spared no expense. According to his bill, there was a funeral procession consisting of three cars, at $25 each, to take Malloy to his $60 grave. There were floral arrangements and wreaths, as well as the $15 suit in which Malloy was buried. By the time Pasqua had finished adding his many extravagances, the bill had reached a hefty $460. He stood to make a $341 profit, or $7,400 today, in addition to the cut he was due on the insurance policies. And on Friday, February 24th, the day after he was certified dead, Iron Mike Malloy was finally buried in Ferncliff Cemetery in Greenberg, New York. Now that they'd disposed of the body, the murder trust needed to collect the money from the insurance policies they'd taken out on Mike. How quickly did they move on that front? Very quickly, on Saturday... March 25th, Red Murphy went to the offices of the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company in Harlem, posing as Joseph Mellory, the fictitious brother of the equally fictitious Nicholas Mellory. But Red only had an IQ of 56, and he didn't know how to file a death claim, so Pasqua went with him to Metropolitan in order to stage manage him and ensure that nothing went wrong. They filled out the paperwork, and on Wednesday, March 1st, Metropolitan cut a check for the $800 policy on Mike and mailed it to Red's rented room at Mrs. Murphy's apartment house. 
It arrived a day later, and when Red went by the apartment to check his mail, he found the envelope waiting for him at the foot of the stairs. There was a feeling of euphoria as he ripped it open to reveal its precious content. He shoved the check into his pocket and ran back to the speakeasy where Marina was waiting. When Murphy entered Marino's place, he held the envelope aloft like some trophy won after a bitter contest. Marina ran from behind the bar and snatched it from him. After all the trials and tribulations, the sweat and toil, their perseverance had been duly rewarded. Marina and Murphy naturally celebrated with a drink. They clinked glasses and thought expensive thoughts. They then let Pasqua know that the check was in hand and the three of them went to Metropolitan's offices in Harlem to cash it. Murphy went inside by himself this time and cashed the check and came back to the car. The $800 policy that was paid out would be worth $17,000 today. So to keep the bills safe, Red kept them wadded up in his hand all the way, which made them damp. Murphy, thrilled with his accomplishment, scrambled into the car's back seat and handed the damp wad of bills to Marino, who immediately started counting. Pasqua stomped on the accelerator and peeled the car away from the curb. Already, Marina was divvying up the spoils. To Pasqua, he gave $400, or $8,600 today. He kept the other half for himself, slipping Murphy a paltry $65, instead of the previously planned few hundred. To Murphy, however, the $65, or $1,400 today, was an absolute fortune. The bartender promptly put the money to good use. I ate, Murphy said. I bought shirts and I bought Marino a suit. And this suit I got for myself. And shirts and stockings and a hat. Later, they also gave Tough Tony Bastone $65, just like Red. They gave, they gave David Kreisberg, the greengrocer, $50 or $1,100 today. They put aside money for Hershey Green, the cab driver, and for Joe Malioni, uh, Tough Tony's partner in the counterfeiting scheme. Finally, Pasqua went back to Dr. Manzella and gave him $50, promising to bring him the extra hundred that he was owed once the two prudential life insurance policies had been paid. What about those extra two policies? How'd they go about cashing them? They started work on that on the same day as the Metropolitan one. You'll recall that each of these policies was worth $494, meaning the two of them together were valued at $988 or $21,000 today. So together, they were worth more than the Metropolitan policy. On Saturday, the 25th, the same day they filed their claim on the Metropolitan policy, Pasqua also went to Prudential's offices. He met with Friedrich Freyason, uh, the agent who had sold them. As was customary, Freyason asked to see the body, but Pasqua told him that it was already buried, which was true. It had been buried the day before. Even though Metropolitan would pay the policy they issued, did the inability to view the body sound any alarms at Prudential? Yes, and in early March, the case was handed to an insurance investigator named Adolf Coldaway. Uh, this was before World War II, so you could still name your kid Adolf and nobody would think you were a Nazi. Adolf was a very experienced investigator, and he immediately saw problems. The policies had only been issued three months ago, and now there was an application for them to be paid out. That itself raises suspicions, since life insurance is a long-term deal. You don't expect to issue a life insurance policy and have the person covered die just three months later. I mean, insurance companies would 
never make money if that was normal. Further, the agent who sold the policy wasn't able to see the body because it had been buried just one day after the death was certified by a doctor. So Adolf started asking around the neighborhood where Nicholas Mellory was supposed to have lived, and nobody in the neighborhood had ever heard of Nicholas Mellory. He then went to the site of the death and spoke with landlady Delia Murphy. She said that she didn't know Nicholas Mellory, that she'd only seen him briefly one night, that she was told he was the brother of her brand new tenant, Joseph Mellory, who had only rented the apartment the day before, and that the ostensible Nicholas Mellory was dead the day after this. She also said that the brother, Joseph Mellory, hadn't been using his room to sleep in and was only stopping by to pick up his mail. Adolf also went to Nicholas Mellory's supposed employer, the florist Michael Del Gaudio, who Pasqua had told to say that he employed Nicholas Mellory as a florist if anyone ever asked. But since Del Gaudio had never employed Mike, he couldn't show Adolf any payroll receipts, nor could he even give a physical description of Nicholas Mellory. On Friday, March 10th, Adolf also went to the undertaker who had buried Mellory, Frank Pasqua. He said, yes, he did know the man, that he'd lived at his home at the address uh, who's in the neighborhood that Adolf had already canvassed, and that he worked for him periodically for about a year. Adolf was extremely suspicious at this point, and he told Pasqua that Prudential couldn't pay out the policies unless, as a formality, he met with the beneficiary brother, Joseph Mallory. So on Monday, March 13th, Red Murphy showed up at the Prudential offices pretending to be Joseph Mallory. And since he had an IQ of only 56, Frank Pasqua came with him. If Pasqua was just the undertaker who had performed the burial, wasn't that suspicious? Yeah, and Adolf asked him why he was there. Now, Pasqua was the most intelligent member of the murder trust, so he had an answer ready. He said his only interest was in collecting his funeral bill, and that he was there to help Joseph Mellory, who was not versed in business matters. Adolf then started asking Red uncomfortable questions, and Red didn't do very well under questioning. Though he did explain why he rented the room. He said that he'd heard his brother was drinking too much, and he rented the room to try to help him straighten out. That would at least explain why he hadn't been sleeping in the room himself, though it didn't explain why he was still renting the room and using it as a mail drop. Pasqua did most of the talking in the interview, and he seemed to have an answer for everything. But Adolf didn't trust him. He didn't know exactly what was going on, but he concluded that whoever Red was, his involvement in the plan was secondary. Pasqua was the brains. With Adolf's suspicions, the murder trust now had an investigator convinced that they were attempting insurance fraud. At this point, members of the trust made another disastrous mistake. What happened? Sunday, March 19th, started as an ordinary evening at Marino's No Name Speakeasy. Marino was there, Red Murphy was behind the bar, and Tough Tony and his colleague in crime, Joseph Malione, were also there. Marino decided to go home and leave Red in charge, and that's when things went really bad. Tough Tony and Malione were sitting at a table having an argument. 
Bastone was complaining that he'd been given only $65 from the Metropolitan Policy, and he wanted a much larger cut of the Prudential Policies once they were paid out. Simon Reed reports, By now, Melioni's simmering temper was reaching a fast boil, and he told Bastoni to go to hell. There was no reason Bastoni was entitled to more than the others, but just when it seemed things were about to get ugly, Melioni, who had received only a fraction of his promised share, excused himself from the table to use the lavatory in the back. Bastoni stayed put and grumbled in Italian as he refilled his glass. With the sound of the toilet flushing behind him, Malioni emerged from the restroom minutes later with a pistol in his hand. He strode toward Bastoni and fired one shot. The blast roared like thunder in the confines of the cramped speakeasy. Bastoni, groaning, staggered from his chair and clutched his shoulder. He walked a few unsteady paces before Malioni fired again. Bastoni screamed and fell to the floor. Keeping his head low, Red Murphy watched the horror unfold from behind the bar. Malioni bent over Bastoni's unconscious form and relinquished him of his forty-five and twenty-five caliber handguns. Suddenly, Bastoni leapt to his feet in a surprising fit of vitality. None of Malioni's shots had found their mark. Taking advantage of his assailant's surprise, Bastoni ran out the speakeasy door. But Malioni was quick to regain his senses and give chase with a gun in each hand. Out on the street, he fired four shots at Bastoni's fleeing silhouette. Two of the bullets struck home. One tore through Bastoni's left thigh. The other pierced his heart and killed him instantly. Malioni turned to run and left his former friend's body in a spreading pool of blood. So let's just get this out of the way and say that if you're engaged in a murder plot to commit insurance fraud, Killing a fellow member of the plot in public is not a good idea. It's bound to attract police attention, and it certainly did so in this case. Joe Malioni had just made a huge mistake because there was a policeman on the beat who heard the shots. His name was Officer Larkin, and he saw Malioni running away. He chased Malioni down, arrested him, and took him to the station. Red Murphy also made a mistake because he came to the door to watch what happened. When other police officers arrived, they started interviewing Red, and when it became obvious he'd seen what had happened, they took him into custody as a material witness. Okay, let's review the situation. Now, one member of the murder trust was dead, tough Tony Bastoni, and two members, Joseph Malioni and Red Murphy, were in police custody with the police determined to investigate what just happened. And with Adolph, the insurance investigator, looking at both Frank Pasqua and Red Murphy, under the false name Joseph Mellory, things were going badly. <laughs> and before we see how bad they went, let's take a moment to stop and thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Tim H., Bill B., Ron T., Joseph P., and Betsy. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by 
Tim Shevlin's personal fitness training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness through personalized nutrition, workout and prayer programs, and daily accountability check-ins. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. So, Jimmy, what did the police determine when they interviewed Malioni and Red back at the station? It apparently didn't occur to Malioni the magnitude of the catastrophic mistake he had made until he was in police custody. But he thought quickly and made up a story to explain what happened. The story he came up with involved Tough Tony recommending a gambling contact to him. He said that he won some money from Tough Tony's contacts in the gambling world, but the guy wouldn't pay up. So he and Tough Tony had gone gone looking for the guy to make him pay, but they couldn't find him. Afterwards, Tough Tony wanted to go look for the guy again, but Malioni wanted to let the matter go. Tough Tony accused Malioni of being yellow and afraid. He also started repeating those claims around some of their mutual associates, and when Malioni went to talk to him about it, Tough Tony was drunk and became belligerent. He became afraid he, Malioni, became afraid for his life, and he then shot Tough Tony in self-defense. Now, of course, this story was totally false, and it would not withstand scrutiny if investigated. I mean, for example, Malioni said that word had gotten back to him from people he knew that Tough Tony had been saying he was yellow and afraid. So, who were these people? Where could they be found? Would they confirm that Tough Tony had been saying Malioni was yellow? And would they confirm that they had told Malioni that he was saying that? All of those things were very unlikely to be confirmed since none of them ever happened. What about Red? What did he say? He really couldn't say what the argument had been over because the two men had been arguing in Italian and Red didn't speak Italian. Also, once he was in custody, Red kind of folded in on himself. He didn't talk much and was described as being semi-comatose. And I don't know this to be the case, but I wonder if part of the reason was that Red knew he wouldn't be able to come up with a convincing story, that anything he said was likely to make the situation worse, and that it was best for him to just keep his mouth shut as much as possible. The two main organizers of the murder trust, Marino and Pasqua, were still on the outside, not in police custody. What'd they think when they discovered what had happened? The next day, on Monday, March 20th, they both read about it in the newspaper. And since the shooting had occurred late at night, there was even a picture of Malioni looking sleepy after police questioning. Needless to say, Marino and Pasqua were horrified. They had no idea what would come out now, particularly when Red Murphy, with his 56 IQ, was called to testify before a grand jury about what he saw. But there was nothing they could do except wait in fear. The wheel of justice was slowly beginning to crush the murder trust. And though this was a lesser order problem, business at Marino's Speakeasy had dropped off in the wake of the shooting. What was insurance agent Adolf Coldaway doing at this time? He was still looking for Red Murphy under the name Joseph Mellory. He'd been told by Frederick Freyason, uh, the agent who'd sold the Prudential insurance policies, that Joseph Mellory worked at a speakeasy on Third Avenue, and so Adolf had gone to Marino's no-name speakeasy. But when he found Marino there, Marino lied to him. He said he hadn't seen Joseph Mellory in some time, that he'd gone to visit relatives in Philadelphia. 
Uh, and Adolf later checked with Pasqua, who confirmed this. So although he hadn't found the living Joseph Mellory, at least he had identified Marino and Pasqua as the only two people who acknowledged knowing him, suggesting that they were key figures to whatever plot was going on, which was in fact true. What was happening with the investigation of Malioni's shooting of Tough Tony? A grand jury was convened, and on Monday, April 3rd, 1933, Red Murphy was called to testify. He said that, although he didn't know what they were arguing about, he saw them arguing just before the shooting. Furthermore, as the owner of the speakeasy, Marino was also called to testify, and he said that he knew Tough Tony and Malioni to have a difficult relationship. The grand jury indicted Malioni on a charge of first-degree murder, which as you can imagine, didn't please Malioni, and which caused him to be angry at his friends in the murder trust. We've covered what was happening with the core members of the murder trust, but there were also lesser members like the cab driver Hershey Green and the greengrocer David Kreisberg. What was happening with them? By April 1933, the same month that Malioni was indicted, both of them were already in police custody on charges unrelated to Iron Mike. So even more of the murder trust was being scooped up, indicating how stupid these people were. Like I said, they were always going to get caught. Hershey Green was a psychopath who drove around in his taxi cab fantasizing about killing his customers. And in April, he was arrested for carrying a concealed handgun, which was against what was known as the Sullivan Law. Daniel Kreisberg's story is even more amusing because the murder trust was not his only criminal activity. He was the cousin of a woman named Marie Baker, and she was known as the Pants Bandit. Simon Reed explains, Her modus operandi garnered considerable attention. In the commission of her crimes, she forced her victims to remove their trousers at gunpoint after relieving them of their wallets, jewelry, and any other valuables with which she could abscond. Without pants, her victims were unable, or more accurately, unwilling, to give chase in public as she made her getaway. When she was out on the job, she brought with her a male accomplice whose only task was to act as a lookout. This was Kreisberg's job, for which he received a small share of the spoils. Well, in April 1933, Daniel Kreisberg was finally arrested for serving as the lookout for the famous Pants Bandit, and he was taken into custody. So, now Tough Tony was dead, and multiple other members of the murder trust were in police custody. Joseph Malioni, the criminal, and Red Murphy, the bartender, were in custody after Tough Tony's shooting. Hershey Green, the cab driver, was arrested on a hidden firearms charge. Daniel Kreisberg, the greengrocer, was arrested after a pants bandit fiasco. And of the main players, only Marino and Pasqua were on the outside. But the authorities still hadn't connected the dots and linked them all to the death of Iron Mike. So what happened to bring all the pieces of the puzzle together? Someone in the murder trust talked. There was a figure in it that we haven't mentioned before because he played only a minor role and I didn't want to overload the listeners with too many names, but this man's name was John McNally. He was 26 years old and he was a petty crook with multiple convictions. At one point in December 1932, before Plan 1 was implemented for killing Iron Mike, Marino and Pasqua were thinking about how they might do the job and they knew that John McNally and another small-time crook named Edward Smith might be available. So they approached the two and said, 
they might have a job for you. Negotiations for this job took place at Pasqua's house, but Smith and McNally wanted too much money. And so Marino and Pasqua said they'd get back to them, and they never ended up using them in any of the plans. Now, in April 1933, McNally was sitting in jail just, you know, five months later because criminals are not the most intelligent people frequently. He also had been taken into custody on a concealed firearms charge under the Sullivan Law, and he started thinking about how, in view of all his previous convictions, the authorities could put him in the big house for a really long time. So he started wondering if there was a way he could get on their good side, you know, offering the authorities something of value in hopes of getting a reduced sentence. And he thought, hey, last December I was invited into a murder plot. Why don't I tell him about that? McNally then arranged to meet with the district attorney, a man named Samuel Foley, and he told him all about the meeting at Pasqua's house, where he and Smith had been asked to bump off a drunk to get insurance money. What did District Attorney Foley think of that? He was skeptical. After all, McNally was a repeat offender, and he could just be making this up to get his sentence reduced. But now that Foley had been told this, it needed to be investigated, so he had the police start seeing if they could find any evidence that supported what McNally had said. It so happened uh, that, as plan after plan to kill Iron Mike failed, the members of the murder trust had gotten progressively more careless in their discussions in the speakeasy. At, at first, they had discussed the plan only in private, with nobody else in earshot. But as Iron Mike repeatedly refused to die, they got more and more desperate. They started having urgent conversations when other people were around, you know, to update each other and figure out what they were going to do next. They still tried to keep all of this quiet and on the hush-hush, but they weren't quiet enough. And other patrons at Marino's no-name speakeasy started overhearing what they were saying. These patrons went to other speakeasies, too. So when the police started visiting other speakeasies and asking if people had heard, heard anything about this bump-off-the-drunk insurance plot, they had. And they were mentioning the names of some of the people being involved, which confirmed John McNally's story. Because of the names that were being mentioned, the authorities then realized that they already had a bunch of the people involved in custody on other charges, which was just like the Manson family. Even before the authorities linked the Tate-LaBianca killings to them, they already had a bunch of the Manson family members in custody on other charges, because these people were so stupid they were always going to get caught, and the same was true of the murder trust. Did District Attorney Foley have them brought up from their cells and interview them? Not at first. Uh, all they had at this stage were word-of-mouth rumors, and he wanted something more concrete, something that would show that this was more than just talk before, you know, he confronted the subject, the suspects. According to McNally and others uh, they had talked to at the speakeasies, this was an insurance fraud plot. So they found out who had insured Nicholas Mellory, and that brought them into contact with the insurance investigator Adolf Caldaway of Prudential. Adolf's investigations had reached something of an impasse at this point. He had lots of evidence of suspicious stuff, and 
Prudential thus had not paid off on the policies, but he was only able to trace the case back so far. Now that the police were in touch with him, that brought all of the suspicious things Adolf knew to the attention of the police. Even though they now had information from the insurance company at their disposal, they still didn't have concrete physical evidence of the crime. How'd they go about getting that? On Thursday, May 11th, District Attorney Foley got permission to have the body of Nicholas Mellory exhumed. So they went to the graveyard and they had the body exhumed and taken to the morgue. Then Simon Reed reports, At 7.45 p.m., Detective Leonard brought a man named John McNally into the morgue. Do you know the man on the table? Leonard asked. McNally nodded. Is that the man you knew to be insured and buried under the name Nicholas Mellory? That's him, McNally replied. Did you know him by any other name? I knew him by his real name. Which is? Michael Malloy, McNally said. So now they had a body, so it wasn't just rumors anymore. And they had a material witness who identified the victim as Iron Mike Malloy. They also got an autopsy underway to determine the cause of death. Now Foley felt he had enough to confront the conspirators. According to D.A. Foley, On that same day, I got Mr. Murphy, whose whereabouts were known to me, brought up out of the jail and talked to him. He told me that he had been in the car when Mike Malloy was run over. But Murphy revealed much more than that when he was brought to Foley's office at 4.20 p.m. that afternoon. He spilled names, substantiating information gathered by detectives on the street and supplied by McNally. He implicated Malioni, saying Bastoni was murdered because of a dispute over the insurance money. Revealing all the intricacies of the scheme, Murphy told Foley, The plan was for me to be Malloy's brother and that he had no mother and father. I was supposed to be his brother and my name was supposed to be Joseph Mellory. He started at the beginning and wound his way through the whole sordid exercise. He shared with Foley the story of the gang's botched attempts on Malloy's life and told the prosecutor they even went so far as to try and kill another man in Malloy's place. This was news to Foley, as well as Bruckman and McKillagy, who were both present. So Red spilled the beans on the whole plot, though he did shape it in his own favor. For example, he said that he had been in the car when Hershey's cab ran over Iron Mike, whereas others indicated that Red, together with Tough Tony, were in the road holding Iron Mike as the cab raced towards him. Still, what he gave the authorities was really useful for their investigation. It was a confession by a member of the murder trust. And he'd given them a new lead about the second victim they'd tried to kill with a cab in Plan 8. They also brought Marino down to the station on May 11th and confronted him, but he played innocent, saying he hadn't seen Mike in seven or eight months and that he was completely innocent of anything that happened to him. Despite this, the authorities took him into custody and placed him in a cell so that he could think about his story. They also brought up Daniel Kreisberg, the greengrocer, who was in custody after his latest fiasco with the Pants Bandit, and talked to him. Like Red Murphy, he admitted his involvement, though he appealed to D.A. Foley's mercy, saying he was a family man with three children he loved very much, and he was afraid of being killed by the gang if he didn't cooperate with the murder plot. He told Foley the whole scheme, though, like Red, he shaped it a bit in his favor. He admitted that he and Red were present in the apartment when Iron Mike was gassed, but they each tried to put the blame on the other for what had happened. 
With Marino now in custody, the only member of the murder trust who is still at liberty was Pasqua. What'd they do about him? They brought him down to the station that same evening, and they interviewed him as soon as they sent Kreisberg back to his cell. Pasqua knew that he was likely to be interviewed in connection with all this at some point, and he was the most intelligent member of the murder trust, so he'd been thinking carefully about what he'd tell the police. He'd also taken steps ahead of time to protect himself, such as not being present at key events so he could deny being at them. He'd also thought of ways to acknowledge certain things as true, but put a different spin on them to make himself look innocent. He said that he didn't know who Mike Malloy was, that he uh, did know Nicholas Mallory, and that he understood that Red Murphy was Mallory's brother. Simon Reed reports, The questioning continued as Foley scraped together facts gathered by the detectives and secured by Foley from McNally, Murphy, and Kreisberg and presented them to Pasqua, who vigorously denied any implication in the killing. He stuck by the story that he had never heard of Mike Malloy. Then he screwed up. It was a simple slip of the tongue, but it was enough to do him in. It happened when Foley was questioning Pasqua about the doctor who signed Mellory's death certificate. Pasqua told Foley that Mellory had been a patient of Dr. Manzella. Prior to the patient's death, the physician visited Mellory twice. It was for this reason that Pasqua called Manzella out to examine Mellory's body and to write the death certificate. Mellory was visited by Manzella, Foley asked? Yes, twice. Tell me about it, Foley said. Pasqua was growing weary. He was visited twice by the doctor, which I don't know anything about. I don't know what it was for, being he had this same case. That is why I called him up when anything happened. Who told you Manzella had the case? I knew it for a fact, Pasqua said. How did you know it? Because Malloy told me. Foley raised an eyebrow. You mean Mike? Yes, said Pasqua. And in that moment, he was fried. You called him Mike? Pasqua, realizing what he had done, searched frantically for the words to put this incredible blunder right. I used to call him Malloy because I knew him as the name Malloy when then they told me his real name was Mallory. He was against the ropes, swinging wildly, hoping for that one lucky punch. Didn't you tell me a minute ago that you didn't know him as Malloy, that you knew him as Mallory? asked Foley, smelling blood. M Mallory, yes, Pasqua stammered. I asked him one time, what is your right name? And he said Mallory. Whether they were kidding or not, I don't know, because I never implicated myself with any of these fellows before. He was known to you as Malloy? No. What was he known to you as? The name I knew first was Mallory. You never heard Malloy used, Foley asked. No. But you just said you did. This wasn't going the way Pasqua had planned. He was starting to feel overwhelmed. Foley was steering the narrative, denying Pasqua a chance to tell his side of things, to recite the story he had spent so much time crafting. And things went downhill from there. Now that they'd looked into the grave, the police quickly figured out that Pasqua had committed insurance fraud on another front because he had charged Prudential $400 for the elaborate funeral, including a fancy casket, a new suit, and full embalming. But None of those things had been done 
when they saw and opened the coffin. So Pasqua had deliberately overcharged Prudential and thus committed insurance fraud, further incriminating him. Needless to say, the police took Pasqua into custody, and so on Thursday, May 11th, just seven weeks after they killed Iron Mike, all of the murder trust were in jail. What about the results of the autopsy they were waiting on? At 10 p.m. that night, D.A. Foley received a call from the assistant medical examiner who gave him the results of the autopsy on Iron Mike, which established that Iron Mike had died due to carbon monoxide poisoning. Carbon monoxide kills you by replacing the oxygen that your blood is supposed to carry to your cells. And one of the effects of this is that it turns your cells cherry red. To the medical examiner, it was obvious from the bright cherry red color of Iron Mike's cells that he had died due to carbon monoxide poisoning in keeping with Plan 9. And thus, with the testimony of Red Murphy and Daniel Kreisberg, they thus had physical evidence confirming exactly how the murder trust had killed Iron Mike. The group still had to be tried, though. What happened at the trial? The trial finally got underway five months later on Wednesday, October 4th, 1933. Most of the murder trust was tried together, though Hershey Green, the cab driver, would be tried separately because he turned state's evidence against the others. Also, he hadn't actually killed anybody since his attempt to kill Iron Mike in Plan 7 failed, as did his attempt to kill the second cab victim, Joseph Murray, in Plan 8. Incidentally, the police were able to locate Joseph Murray, so they were able to add his testimony to the case against the murder trust. What happened at the trial itself? What defense did the members of the murder trust use? We won't go through the trial blow by blow, but suffice it to say that D.A. Foley made them look like fools under cross-examination and tore their stories apart. The basic strategy they employed was basically shifting the blame. For example, Greengrocer Daniel Kreisberg tried to shift blame onto others, saying he was an innocent father of three children whom he deeply loved and he only cooperated with the others out of fear for his life. Frank Pasqua said that he really wasn't involved and was only dimly aware of the plan and that he also had only cooperated to the limited extent he had out of fear. Since one member of the murder trust, tough Tony Bastone, was conveniently dead and couldn't testify in his own defense, there was a general attempt to blame him, making him out to be the mastermind of the plan, who then bullied everyone else into cooperating under threat of force. But D.A. Foley shredded that argument by pointing out that Tough Tony was only paid $65 for his efforts, or $1,400 today. $65 is a small amount. That was only a fraction of the $800, or $17,000 today, that was actually paid out. Others got much more money than that, indicating that Tough Tony could not have been the ringleader but someone who only played a subordinate role. Were there other aspects of the trial that were of note? Yes, one of them was the important role that the trial itself played in the development of forensic science. This was a, a, a pivotal trial in terms of how forensics later developed. People had known about carbon monoxide poisoning for some time, but one of the things they didn't know is just how much carbon monoxide it took to kill you, or how you could determine a fatal carbon monoxide poisoning after death. 
That changed with this trial. As Deborah Bloom lays out in her book, The Poisoner's Handbook, New York City had a medical examiner's office that was rapidly expanding and laying the basis for modern forensic toxicology. It was led by men such as Chief Medical Examiner Charles Norris and his toxicologist Alexander Gettler. And in the months between when the murder gang was accused of killing Iron Mike and when they actually went to trial, Gettler did a research project on what could be determined about carbon monoxide in the blood of victims. Now, as you can tell by the name, carbon monoxide is a chemical compound that is made out of element 6, or carbon, and element 8, or oxygen. It has one carbon atom and one oxygen atom, so its chemical symbol is CO, not CO2, which is carbon dioxide, just CO for carbon monoxide. Deborah Bloom reports, The durability of carbon monoxide in a dead body was a question Gettler fixed upon that year. German scientists had reported two years earlier that bodies exhumed after three months in the ground still contained carboxyhemoglobin. Was that its limit, Gettler wondered? Or was the compound even longer lasting? He'd filled 16 bottles with blood from people, including Malloy, who had died of CO poisoning. All the blood samples were saturated with carboxyhemoglobin. Half of them had gone into the lab icebox and half onto one of the long wooden shelves that lined the laboratory wall. His idea was simply to compare the cell's rate of decay in cold preservation conditions versus room temperature. Gettler and his staff checked the bottles at intervals ranging from 24 hours to 84 days after first storage. In no case was the carbon monoxide increased by putrefaction, he'd noted, reaffirming the fact that after death a human body neither made nor absorbed the gas. Gettler found that carboxyhemoglobin did diminish as the blood cells decayed, but its disappearance was slow, barely detectable in the earliest measurements. At the longest interval, 84 days, the carbon monoxide saturation declined only from 75.3 to 70.8%, a fatal reading at either amount. And Mike Malloy's blood? His CO saturation measured at that still potent 70%. Equally damning on autopsy, the old man's heart and lungs were stained bright with the all-too-familiar cherry red. Dr. Gettler's new discoveries thus helped document that Iron Mike died from carbon monoxide poisoning and helped lay the groundwork for future forensic science. What happened at the end of the trial? The case was given over for jury deliberation on the evening of Wednesday, October 18th, when the trial had been underway for just two weeks, and the jury began deliberating immediately. In the early morning hours of Thursday, October 19th, at 4.15 a.m., a few hours later, they returned their verdicts. The jury determined that each of the defendants was guilty. Marino, Pasqua, Red Murphy, and Kreisberg. And they indicated that each should die in the electric chair. The judge thanked them for their verdict and set formal sentencing for later in the afternoon that day. When the time came, the judge sentenced them to be electrocuted just over a month later, in the week of Monday, November 20th. Simon Reed reports, Speaking for all of them, it was Marino, his voice dripping with sarcasm, who answered, We have nothing to say, Your Honor. There was then an appeals process, which lasted for five months, and during the appeals process, they came within a few hours of execution three times. But ultimately, 
They were scheduled to be executed on the night of Thursday, June 7, 1934. By that point, their sarcastic bravado on the final day of the trial had worn off. One of the rumors that had spread during the trial was that the murder trust wasn't just centered on killing Mike Malloy. There were claims that they had been involved been involved in something much broader and that they were responsible for many more unexplained deaths in New York. There may have been at least some truth to this, as the police had uncovered evidence that Marino had killed his girlfriend, Maybelle Carlson, for insurance money. He appears to have used an alcohol and exposure to cold method on her that later became the blueprint for Plan 6 against Mike, as we discussed last episode. But it's very doubtful that they were involved in anything much broader than that. Nevertheless, Pasqua tried to use these rumors to his advantage. Simon Reed reports, On the afternoon of June 7th, the four condemned men were ushered from their cells on Sing Sing's death row and placed in pre-execution cells a dozen paces from the death chamber's door. Marino, Kreisberg, and Murphy struggled to maintain their composure. Pasqua, however, was made of much softer stuff reported the Bronx paper. In an effort to dodge the chair, Pasqua has hinted he is willing to squeal, hinting that he had information linking the murder ring with several other insurance plots. But this offer was rejected. Robert Campbell, a reporter with the Daily Mirror, spent the afternoon hanging around the death cells, witnessing the final hours of Marino and the lads. As the fateful strike of the clock drew near, the men carried themselves with decreasing dignity. They cried and pleaded for clemency, Campbell noted. They begged Principal Keeper, Sheehy, for word from the governor in Albany, but there was none to report. Campbell recorded their final hours with dramatic flair. The heart-rending farewells of relatives, the visits of spiritual counselors, Reverend Father John McCaffrey, Catholic chaplain, and Rabbi Jacob Katz. Now the final head shave. Time races. It's getting dark. Outside the silver moonlight. A shriek of a New York Central train. Life. Happiness, New York. The death house was wet with their tears, Campbell wrote. No longer braggarts. Gone their Rabelaisian banter. None of the swagger they aped when they first went up the river. They were befuddled from fright. While Marino, Pasqua, and Kreisberg were bidding tearful farewells to their families, Murphy sat in his cell alone. He was the forsaken. The only visitor he ever had was his lawyer. Because Red Murphy was the only one who didn't have a family. Then, suddenly, word came from the governor's mansion. A two-week reprieve had been granted to Red Murphy. The reason was that when he was in custody as a material witness, before he was charged with any crime, a physician who was also in custody had been observing Murphy. He became convinced of the man's mental handicaps, and evidence emerged that he had spent time in a school for what were then called feeble-minded boys, raising questions about his competence. He was thus moved away from the death chamber to another cell for evaluation. Did the reprieve for Red encourage the other men? Of course. They had all gotten last-minute reprieves before, and Red had gotten one just now, so maybe they all would. But they didn't. This reprieve was just for Red, not for anybody else. And it wouldn't permanently stop his execution either. It was only temporary. That night, just before midnight, Pasqua, Marino, 
and Kreisberg were put to death in the electric chair. Incidentally, the warden at Sing Sing was personally opposed to the death penalty, and as a sign of personal protest, he turned his back and faced the wall when the electrocutions occurred. Red Murphy was executed the next month. That deals with the main players in the murder trust. But what about the others who were more peripherally involved? Tough Tony was already dead, so his case had been moved to a higher court for adjudication. Malioni, who shot Tough Tony, had turned state's evidence and was sentenced to five years for manslaughter instead of first-degree murder. Hershey Green, the cab driver, received a five- to ten-year sentence for felonious assault, since he didn't actually kill anybody. And Dr. Manzella, who faked Iron Mike's death certificate, received a lesser charge of being an accessory after the fact, and he was charged with failing to notify the medical examiner and police of Iron Mike's death. But one way or another, justice was done to the murder trust. They were always going to get caught. Now, what can we say about Iron Mike and the murder trust from the faith perspective? Well, alcoholism bad, insurance fraud bad, murder bad, poisoning the American public by putting extra methanol in industrial alcohol, knowing it will kill more American citizens like the U.S. government did. Bad. Obviously, we should pray for Iron Mike and everyone else involved, and there is some comfort in knowing that even before their executions, the members of the murder trust were ministered to by a priest and rabbi, so they had a chance to make their peace with God before they went to meet him. And there's something else. You may remember from last episode that just before Plan 9 was implemented, Red Murphy tried to warn off Iron Mike. He told him what would happen to him if he didn't leave. Iron Mike decided not to act on this and resigned himself to whatever fate awaited him. But he made a prophecy, saying, If they do anything to me, Malloy reportedly told him, they will suffer for it themselves. And this prophecy came true. They did get caught, and they did suffer for it themselves, something in which we may see the hand of God at work. Anything else we should say before we go? As we heard last episode, this story was playing out against the backdrop of the Great Depression and America's experiment with prohibition. The Great Depression played a big part in generating the financial desperation affecting the people in this story, including why Iron Mike didn't examine the generosity of his supposed friends more closely, why the murder trust decided to commit insurance fraud, and why the Metropolitan and Prudential sales agents were willing to break rules and offer policies in such sketchy circumstances. The Great Depression would not end until just before World War II, but America had already decided that it had had enough of the prohibition of alcoholic beverages that had created the speakeasy culture and boosted organized crime in the first place. In February of 1933, the U.S. Congress proposed the 21st Amendment in order to repeal the 18th Amendment that prohibited the manufacture and sale of alcoholic beverages. It was passed by three-quarters of the states in record time, being added to the Constitution in December 1933, just as the plans against Iron Mike were being implemented. And the 18th Amendment thus became the first and so far only amendment of the U.S. Constitution to be repealed. So, in 1933, Prohibition was being phased out. Deborah Bloom reports, 
In April 1933, Legal Beer, 3.2% alcohol by weight, made its triumphant, celebrated, long-awaited return. The nation's breweries started working round the clock. One plant alone sent 350,000 cases and 18,000 kegs of beer to New York. The entire supply was consumed within two days. People bought nickel bottles by the dozen in grocery stores and from street stands. When those ran out, they bought dime bottles. Restaurants were packed with diners lingering over their gold-filled steins. Some of the speakeasies cheerfully converted to legitimacy. They removed their concealing screens and created little beer gardens with bright-colored tablecloths and baskets of pretzels. Exuberant politicians watching the beer flow like water predicted that the 18th Amendment would be repealed by the end of the year, buoyed by the wet majority of a thirsty nation. One of the popular songs of the day was known as Cocktails for Two. Uh, The song celebrated the repeal of Prohibition, and sometimes it had an introduction that went, Oh, what a delight to be given the right to be carefree and gay once again, no longer slinking, respectably drinking, like civilized ladies and men. Here's a clip of a 1934 recording of it by Johnny Green. In some secluded rendezvous that overlooks the avenue With someone sharing a delightful chat of this and that And cocktails for two As we enjoy a cigarette To some exquisite chansonette Two hands are sure to slyly meet beneath the serviette With cocktails for two My head may go reeling But my heart will be obedient Intoxicating kisses for the principal ingredient. Most any afternoon at five, we'll be so glad we're both alive. Then maybe fortune will complete our plan that all began with cocktails for two. An even more famous recording of it would be made in the 1940s by Spike Jones and his City Slickers. Spike Jones was a comedic band leader who worked comedy into his numbers. So the Spike Jones version of Cocktails for Two starts normal and then, well, Spike Jones starts happening. But one way or another, it was a sign that happier times were back. Jimmy, what's your bottom line on Iron Mike Malloy? Iron Mike Malloy was an amazing man. Despite the fact he was a raging alcoholic, he had apparently trained his body to resist the effects of both ethanol and methanol to an amazing degree. Between that and a combination of luck and divine providence, he survived an appalling number of attempts on his life. Nine different plans were used on him, some of them multiple times. And yet, he not only consistently refused to die, he also consistently failed to even realize that his associates were trying to kill him. The people against him, later nicknamed the Murder Trust, were desperate during the Great Depression, and while they were not as stupid as the Manson family, they were always going to get caught. In fact, most of them were in jail on unrelated charges even before people started coming forward to say what they had heard about the plan against Iron Mike, due to the murder trust's carelessness about discussing it. And so, Iron Mike's prophecy that if the gang did anything to him, 
they would suffer for it in return, came true. May God have mercy on them and on all of us today. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the viewers and listeners on this subject? We'll have a link to Simon Reed's book, On the House, The Bizarre Killing of Michael Beloy, Deborah Bloom's book, The Poisoner's Handbook, also information on the web about Michael Malloy. Uh, we'll have a video from Today I Found Out called That Time the U.S. Government Intentionally Poisoned and Killed Over 10,000 of Its Citizens, uh, information about the earliest confirmed alcoholic beverages, prohibition in general, prohibition in the United States in particular, the 18th and 21st Amendments, the Great Depression, double indemnity, Johnny Green's recording of Cocktails for Two and Spike Jones's recording of it, as well as a uh, an episode or a series of episodes of an old-time radio serial. Now, there's an old-time radio show. I'm a fan of old-time radio. And there is an old-time radio show called Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. And it's about an insurance investigator, kind of like uh, the insurance investigator Adolf that we heard about, Adolf Caldaway that we heard about this episode, um, who investigates sketchy insurance things and he solves crimes. And that's who Johnny Dollar is. And he itemizes and pads his expense account. So the series were at, was advertised with the phrase, the man with the action packed expense account. Um, and, uh, I got a, a, a message from, uh, listener Johannes F who, when he heard that we were going to be doing Iron Mike, suddenly realized that there was a Johnny Dollar story based on it. And so he sent me a link. It's at, to the episodes. He linked the first episode, but there's five of them that we'll play in sequence of the indestructible Mike matter on yours truly, Johnny Dollar. And I listened to it and it's, it's entertaining. It's interesting. Um, this, they basically took just the premise. You, you have someone trying to kill a drunk for insurance money who, and the drunk happens to be named Mike. Um, but if you're interested in hearing an all, and they use that, but changed everything else. Uh, if you're interested in hearing a Johnny Dollar old time radio story, um, that's based on the true story of Iron Mike Malloy, check out yours truly, Johnny Dollar. The Indestructible Mike Matter, and we'll have a link to that. And thank you, Johannes F. Excellent. So that'll do it from, for us this time. We would love to hear your theories about the murder trust that killed Iron Mike Malloy. You can let us know about them by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they do here on Mysterious World. You can check out their work and, you know, hire them yourselves for video and animation work. But you can see samples of what they do by going to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, where we have the video version of Mysterious World as well as other videos I do. Um, I am trying to grow my channel, though. We're trying to get up to 40,000 subscribers, so I'd really appreciate it if while you're there, you'd hit the uh, subscribe button and the bell notification so that you always get a notification, whether it's for Mysterious World or one of the other videos I do. 
So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to be looking at the intersection of science and spirituality. Specifically, we're going to be looking at experiments that have been conducted on the issue of whether it's possible to weigh the human soul. Does the soul have weight? Can we measure that weight on a scale? The results of the studies have been startling. And we'll be talking about them and how they intersect with the faith perspective next week. So you won't want to miss that. Excellent. Folks, be sure to follow Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, in your favorite podcast app, or at Jimmy's YouTube channel, where you should make sure to hit the bell to get notifications. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 258. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Star Wars. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash Star Wars. Two hands are sure to slyly meet beneath a serviette with cocktails for two. My head may go real, but my heart will be obedient with intoxicating kisses for the principal ingredient. Just any afternoon at five, we'll be so glad we're both alive. Then maybe fortune will complete her plan that all began with cocktails for two. No! No! <laughs> <laughs> My head may
Flowers Prize. Flower Show. For the Prince of Any afternoon at five, we'll be so glad we're both alive. Then maybe fortune will complete her plan. That all began with cocktails.